I've got mixed emotions about the potential of my kids coming back to the family farm. I mean, on one hand, obviously, I'd be proud. You know, this farm has been in our family at this location since 1882, and I'm the fifth generation to run it. That's a fact I'm extremely proud of. And if one of my kids could be the sixth generation, I mean, I don't think anything could make me prouder. And if it's what they feel called to do, then I'm in 100% support. But on the other hand, I've got smart kids. I've got kids who I feel can do anything they put their mind to. And I really don't want to see them come back to this way of life and struggle. That is the voice of Matt Griggs, owner and operator of Griggs Farms in Humboldt, Tennessee, speaking in our film Farm Free or Die in 2021. We created that film to help shape public dialogue on farming and food security heading into the 2023 legislative season, which will take up the all-important U.S. federal farm bill, which comes up every five years. And we'll talk to Matt Griggs about the upcoming farm bill, food security, and what life is like for farmers in America today and more. I'm Roger Sorkin, and welcome to the American Resilience Podcast from American Resilience Project, where we make films designed to influence public policy, inspire cultural change, and strengthen civilizational security. Matt Griggs is a row crop farmer who has been steadily transitioning his farm towards regenerative agricultural practices like cover cropping, which reduces his need for fertilizer and helps him withstand the effects of extreme weather events caused by climate change. Matt Griggs, it's good to speak with you again, and welcome to the American Resilience Podcast. Thanks, Roger. Glad to be here. So before we get into some of the meatier topics of carbon markets, the farm bill, regenerative agriculture, tell us a little bit about the history of your farm and how you became a farmer. I'm a fifth generation farmer. We've been in business at this location ever since 1882. Uh, I grew up on the farm. Uh, Worked with my dad and granddad uh, all my life. Uh, went to college from 98 to 02. By that time, my grandfather had passed away. My dad was sole owner of the farm. And uh, I worked closely with him after graduating for three years until he suddenly became ill in the middle of the growing season in 2005. And he passed away a month later. And so I was kind of really thrown into the fire. I thought I was ready, but looking back, of course, there was a lot of things I didn't know. But uh, good Lord looked over us and we've managed to, uh, keep the farm operating. Uh, we've actually doubled it in its size. We currently farm 1600 acres of cotton, corn, soybeans, and wheat in Crockett County, Tennessee. So in the film, you talked about how you have mixed feelings about your kids taking over the farm when there are so many challenges in the farming business. Did you also have mixed feelings when you first decided to take over the farm? And how did you make the final decision to go all in? Well, you know, growing up, uh, I always wanted to be a farmer. Uh, my dad, before I went off to college, my dad was uh, actively discouraging me from coming back in the farm because, you know, it, it's a hard lifestyle. There's not a lot of huge profit potential in it. You know, he went through the financial crises of the early 80s, uh, drought, and really struggled for a lot of years. He was able to make a living, but I mean, it, it's a hard way of life. And he knew with my, with my intelligence, I could go do pretty much whatever I wanted to do and be very successful at it and you know, not have the stress and the financial worries of running a farm. So he actively discouraged me from doing it. 
And then, like I said, unfortunately, he he fell ill in his mid-50s and passed away. And then uh, I inherited an 800-acre farm. And uh, then I was able to really put my fingerprints on the farm. Uh, I had a little bit different philosophy about, philosophy about running the farm than what my dad did. He was all about, you know, saving money and being very, very frugal. Whereas I recognize that in the changing agricultural landscape, that if you really want to be a successful farmer going forward, you were really going to have to invest in your farm. Uh, input prices were continuing to grow up. Uh, technology was expanding at a astronomical rate. And I knew for us to be competitive in the farming industry going forward, those were things we were going to have to invest in, not only to be competitive, but also to help minimize cost and uses of inputs in producing crops. You've talked about your experiences trying to transition your farm to regenerative agriculture and how that transition is much easier said than done. And one of the things that we're advocating for through public policy is help for farmers to make that transition. What should policymakers know about the complexity of this transition to regenerative agriculture? The average row crop in America from planting to harvest is generally somewhere around four and four and a half months. So you're looking at a 120 to 135 days that you have a crop out there growing. Every minute of every hour of every day, there is something out there that is trying to take yield away from you. The only time you have 100% yield potential of the crop that you're planting is while the seed is still in the bag. Once that seed goes in the ground, your yield potential is dropping every single day. So there's so many details, so many things that you have to pay attention to and you have to get right in order to produce a profitable crop. A lot of that is done before the seed's even put in the ground, you know, planting how much fertilizer you're going to use, what type you're going to use, what kind of seed you're going to plant, where you're going to plant it, what's the planting rate going to be. So there's so many details you need to work out. And this, and learning those details, learning how to look for them, how to manage them, how to adapt to them can take years worth of experience. And when you start talking about regenerative agriculture, you're talking about changing a huge part of all those details you've learned and going off in a completely different direction and learning those details. So you're throwing a big monkey wrench into your operation that if you miss one single detail, you could have a crop failure. So there's a, there's a big risk in changing a big part of your operation all at once because all of this, everything you do needs to work in harmony with something else you've done. And if something doesn't, then, you know, you've only got one shot every year to make an income. And if you mess that up, well, you might not be in business the following year to put another crop in. So specifically with regards to cover crops, how has cover cropping helped you increase your yields and withstand some of the extreme weather that we've seen in recent years? Cover crops are a great tool. It's not a magic cure-all of everything that's wrong with your farm. But if you just uh, boil it down to the basics, the, the basic building block in life on earth is carbon. All right. And plants are a tool to take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. It's pretty much the only way. 
if your soil has more carbon in it, uh, life in the soil and grow and that's growing in up and out of the soil will flourish. The more carbon you have, the more organic matter you have. But there's a there's a host of benefits that we see from from cover crops. Some of them we can uh, see almost immediately, and then some improvements can take years to build. One of the first uh, noticeable benefits we see from cover crops, if you have the right crops planted and the right uh, plant density planted, is is weed control. Uh, you know, we're no-till farming, and we uh, rely heavily on uh, herbicides to take care of our weed problems because we don't do any kind of tillage. Well, we're quickly losing uh, the efficacy of a lot of our herbicides to resistance in weeds. Well, if you can throw a, if you can throw another weed control method out there, it really helps either prevent or delay resistance of these weeds. And cover crops are a great tool for for weed suppression by outcompeting the weeds by smothering the weeds out or not even letting them germinate through allelopathic effects. So we've uh, seen a pretty big decrease in our uh, herbicide use just due to cover crops, plus we're able to control a lot of these tro uh, troublesome resistant weeds. Uh, there's uh, other benefits. Uh, uh, you know, it's been said that we don't have, uh, you know, talking about uh, flooding and stuff, you know, we're seeing it seems like we're seeing more drastic uh, weather patterns. You know, we just don't get just just enough rain. We're getting copious amounts of rain in a short amount of time. And we see a lot of problems with uh, with runoff and flooding and stuff. And it's been said that we don't have a, a water problem. We've got an infiltration problem because our soils have been mismanaged for uh, decades that the soil is not able to infiltrate the water as it should, and therefore it's running off and then it's flooding lower-lying areas. The best way to build soil structure is to have a living plant growing on that ground, the roots going down into the soil, breaking up any hard pans, increasing the porosity of the, of the soil. Well, if you've only got a cash crop growing there four months out of the year, well, that's eight months out of the year that you don't have anything growing and the soil is, is kind of collapsing. You're losing a lot of that porosity. Also, you're not capturing carbon for about eight months out of the year. You're not capturing sunlight from the sun for about eight, uh, eight months out of the year and putting that energy back in back into the ground. Then, uh, you know, once you increase the, the physical properties of the soil, the water infiltration, the amount of air that's able to move into the soil, uh, you're, and then you're able to increase the biological aspect of the soil, which... Uh, you know, there's there's harmful things in the soil, harmful microbes and harmful fungi that can uh, attack your plants. But the vast majority of them are beneficial. If you can raise the beneficial population of microbes and fungi in the soil, it helps control the, the harmful ones. Therefore, we don't have to use uh, as much chemicals on our seed as a seed treatment to protect young seedlings from either disease or, or pests. So it, there's a lot of interaction things, and it's kind of a, a chain reaction. You start improving the soil. Uh, there's a lot of other things that come into play that can really help improve the natural fertility and the natural habitat that the plants grow in. So as you know, we made Farm Free or Die to help guide some of the discussion and the education around the 2023 Farm Bill. And 
One of the things that we believe makes a lot of sense to work into this policy is a way to monetize the sequestering of carbon in the soil. One of the farmers in the film even says he wants carbon to be his new cash crop. So what should policymakers keep in mind specifically with regards to establishing what could become a lucrative carbon market? To start off with, we have a tool that's already been implemented on millions of acres across the world that can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil where it's not only is it out of the atmosphere and benefiting the atmosphere, but it's also benefiting our food production by putting more carbon into the soil. You know, we're already doing that with cash crops, but like I said, uh, you know, cash crops are generally only growing about four to four and a half months out of the year, leaving eight months out of the year that for the vast majority of those acres, we don't have anything growing on them, pulling carbon out of the, out of the atmosphere and putting it into the soil. So I'm a big proponent. I'm a big proponent of cover crops. And by virtue, if you plant cover crops, you're going to be sequestering carbon. Carbon. I think that it's a, there's a great opportunity for farmers to create an extra revenue stream uh, from these cover crops. I mean, I, right now, our hope with cover crops is that we're going to improve the soil and hopefully reduce our inputs and make a pro make extra profit that way by having to buy less inputs and making more yield. But these cover crops do cost money to plant. They cost money money to terminate. So if we can drive extra income from these cover crops by uh, having some kind of a carbon market, then I think that that holds great promise for a lot of producers who are open-minded enough to try it. I think, uh, you know, it can help. Uh, carbon markets could really help uh, minimize you know, any potential negative impacts they might have from growing a cover crop on their cash crops. That being said, the way our current carbon markets are structured, I'm not a fan of. Uh, we have quite a few companies and more coming online every year that's jumping into the fray. And basically, the carbon market right now is a wild, wild west. There's really not cohesive structure out there to verify a lot of what farmers are doing. And then a lot of these companies that's doing the middleman work that's getting the farmer's data, deriving the carbon credits and selling to these other companies, you know, they're making a big chunk of the profit and it's still unclear how, what percentage of the profit from selling these carbon credits is go actually going to the farmer, the actual producer of the carbon credits. Normally I'm against government, especially government stepping into places where it's really, really not needed. But I do think when it comes to carbon markets, I do think that we do need a consistent structure, a consistent set of guidelines on how to implement these programs and how to verify these programs. You're listening to the American Resilience Podcast from American Resilience Project. I'm Roger Sorkin, the director of the American Resilience Project. Be sure to visit us online at amresproject.org, where you can watch all of our films for free and learn about how you can take action on a number of resilience-related issues, including food security, sea level rise, clean energy, and more. American Resilience Project is a nonprofit 
We make all of our films available to watch for free. You can go to our website, amresproject.org, and please consider supporting our work with a tax-deductible donation. two ways to become a farmer. You're either born into it or you marry into it. Otherwise, there's really no other way for a person just to say one day, I want to farm. Because the startup costs are just astronomical. All our modern machinery is pretty much operated by electronics and software, and we're prevented by the manufacturers of actually accessing certain parts of that machine. You know, we don't have the tools to diagnose our equipment anymore. The dealership won't even sell it to us. So here we are, you know, I've got a wheat crop, I've got a harvest. I've got a wheat crop that's deteriorating in the field as we speak. I've got weather systems coming in that could potentially ruin my wheat crop. I can't be waiting for the dealership to send a technician out with a laptop to hook up to the combine. You know, farmers are known to be very resourceful, to take whatever resources they have at hand and make things work. I should have the ability to get the same resources as a dealership does to diagnose my machine, to repair my machine. That is the voice of Matt Griggs, the fifth generation owner and operator of Griggs Farms in Humboldt, Tennessee, appearing in our recent film, Farm Free or Die. In that clip, Matt was talking about one of the modern challenges that farmers face around the high-tech equipment that's used on farms these days and how the farmers themselves are frequently denied the right to repair their own equipment. Matt Griggs, we just heard you describe the challenges you face when it comes to being able to work on your own equipment, the right to repair. And besides that, along with the high prices associated with just getting into farming, what advice would you give to anyone who's interested in a career in agriculture? From my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, one perspective, but to be successful in the farming business, I mean, you have to have a passion for it. You have to have a passion for growing things and have to have a passion for producing things. But it takes a lot more than just passion to be able to successfully farm. I mean, you, you're, you're actually running a business, so you have to have a very good business sense about you. It's not all just driving a tractor. I mean... You know, being in the fields, actually operating equipment is, in reality, only about 20 to 25% of my job. Uh, the rest of the time is actually running the business, maintaining equipment, making plans on what I'm going to grow, how I'm going to grow it, how much of it I'm going to grow. There's, uh, you got to, you know, it, it's, it's often been said that, you know, farmers have to be experts in so many different areas you have to be uh you have to be an expert in plant science and soil science you have to be an uh, expert in uh, running a business you have to be an expert in engineering of uh, equipment repair there's just so many things that you have to have a broad knowledge of because if you don't know how to do it then you have to pay somebody else to do it and if you have to pay somebody else to do it that's leaving less money for yourself to run the farm and the the profit margins in raising crops is so tight that 
Yeah, you just take, for example, if you don't know how to re repair equipment or you don't want to repair equipment, you've got to take it to a shop that's probably going to charge somewhere between $100 and $200 per hour labor. Uh, that can quickly take a big chunk of profit from the year, and you've only got a chance once every year to, to make a profit. You and I have talked a little bit about the international component of agriculture policy, ag economics, and how what happens around the world can affect our own food prices at home or shortages here and our overall food security in the U.S. I'm thinking of the war in Ukraine, for example, which is considered a breadbasket for Europe and North Africa and how breakdowns in food supply and production have ripple effects. So what kind of international perspective do you think our policymakers need to consider as they begin drafting the 2023 Farm Bill? You know, everything has become global now, and agricultural commodities is no different. Used to, uh, what would dictate, say, corn prices was how good of a crop Iowa and Illinois was having. Now, it's how good of a crop the whole world is having, especially with South America becoming a major player in producing agricultural commodities. You know, right now, we're going through a La Nina which uh, typically for South America means drought, which is really opened up the opportunities for more grain exports from the U.S. and thus raising our prices because South America is not producing as much. Now, when we flip to an El Nino, it could be the other, other way around. Uh, the huge Chinese demand for agricultural commodities uh, they could start sourcing more of it from South America, which would uh, decrease our prices. So, you know, it's not just what happened in the U.S. anymore. Uh, any kind of uh, natural disasters or, uh, you know, weather disasters all across the world can influence what we receive for our commodities here in the U.S. You're correct. Ukraine's a big breadbasket bread for Europe, but we generally don't ship very many agricultural commodities to Europe. You know, Europe uh, depends a lot on uh, Russia and the Ukraine and some uh, uh, other fertile regions in that area to supply them with their grain. Most of our uh, commodity exports is exported over over to Asia. So. The war in Ukraine doesn't really affect our grain prices because that's not big business for us. What is really uh, what is really impacted is the cost of our inputs because a lot of our inputs could potentially come from that area, from Russia and Ukraine. And now we're seeing some embargoes with Russia, uh, you know, trying trying to influence them to pull out of Ukraine. So, like fertilizer, for example. A lot of our nitrogen fertilizer and, and other fertilizers comes from that region. So uh, that's a big reason our, fertil uh, our fertilizer costs are higher than we've ever seen them. Uh, they, after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine uh, last year, uh, you know, the prices of, of nitrogen, DAP, potassium, all of those nutrients just went through the roof. And if it hadn't been for high grain prices, there would have been no chance of us making any kind of profit last year. So, uh, yeah, the war in Ukraine has, has definitely affected us, but it's more on the input side rather than, rather than us being able to sell our commodities. In the film, you talked about our food security and these enormous supply chains that we have to rely upon to get food to our tables and how Americans are just not prepared for a shock to that system. 
what do you think we should be thinking about when it comes to improving our food security and strengthening our supply chains? Uh, there's a lot of similarities between our food supply and the actual process of growing a crop. You know, I talked earlier about there's so many details, so many steps that it takes to go growing a successful crop. Well, there's just as many details, just as many things that need to work in harmony to bring our crop to your table. And when you see a disruption in just one single sector in that supply chain, uh, everything breaks down. And when COVID hit, you know, a lot of manufacturing was put on hold uh, or declined. You know, there's a lot of industries that were really uh, affected. And, you know, we saw a lot of breaks in the supply in a lot of breaks in the supply chain there's a lot of products that were hard to get there's a lot of products that's still hard to get you know i uh you know over the holidays i just wanted to make some checks mix i couldn't find any corn wheat or rice checks to save my life on the on the grocery store shelves yeah it's you know we saw the toilet paper crisis uh back there during covid and you know for the last two years we've seen over like over in california how many how many ships are, are docked waiting to have their products offloaded? But because of a host of different reasons, uh, we can't get those ships unloaded quickly to get the products to the consumers. I mean, there's just so many things that we've taken for granted for years. And over the last couple of years, we've seen breakdowns in the supply chain. And I mean, it's definitely caused some headaches, but it could get a whole lot worse. You know, I don't, I don't, I doubt there's very many people that have gone hungry because they couldn't get food. They might not be able to get the product that they want, but nobody's been at risk of, of going hungry yet. So it's no secret that climate change is a very political issue, it can be challenging to talk about across the political divide in this country. So how do you talk about the environmental changes that we're facing in a way that bypasses some of the more distorted rhetoric on the topic? You know, I think that there's one thing that I don't think anybody can deny, regardless of what you believe. I don't think there's, I think there's one thing that nobody can deny. We're putting carbon in the atmosphere. And having more carbon in the atmosphere is not going to benefit us. You would think that, well, maybe plants benefit from having more carbon in the atmosphere because that's what they breathe in is carbon dioxide. But it's actually been proven that higher levels of carbon in the atmosphere is, can actually be detrimental to plants themselves. Uh, so I think I don't see how anybody can disagree that we're putting more carbon in the atmosphere and it, and it's really doesn't need to be in the atmosphere. So we need to look at steps to reduce that, but I think we need to try and do it by incentivizing, uh, industry and, uh, the American public in general, rather than doing it by regulation. And so finally, what does the future look like for Griggs Farms? And what do you hope your legacy will be? Well, what I want to do with our farm, the area I live in, I want to leave it in better shape than when I got it. I want to leave the air cleaner. I want to leave the soil better. I want to leave the soil more fertile. You know, I want to leave all of our equipment, my office building, all of our farm buildings. I want to leave it in better shape when I'm done than what I received it in for our future generations. Well, Matt Griggs, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time and your good work. I think yours is a critical perspective to hear and should be required listening for anyone in Washington and beyond who's setting out to draft the upcoming farm bill. I appreciate the opportunity, Roger.
You've been listening to the American Resilience Podcast from American Resilience Project. Be sure to visit us online at amresproject.org. That's A-M-R-E-S project.org, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You can watch all of our films for free and learn more about getting involved in a number of different issues from the energy transition to coastal resilience to food security. This program is available on all major podcast platforms, and please do leave us a review. Today's show was produced by American Resilience Project with editing help from Joseph Skinner and music by the great John Cabon. For all of us at American Resilience Project, thank you for listening and supporting us because civilization deserves a fighting chance.